Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, the NFIB ramping up opposition to what they call a small business surtax in the president's proposed budget bill. But how many small businesses would actually be impacted? Also this morning, Justice Clarence Thomas finds himself at the center of a controversy over questions about the lack of a Supreme Court ethics policy. What's the best way to ensure public trust in the high court? In our community and business spotlight this morning for Child Abuse Prevention Month, the United Way of Hancock County is highlighting the many ways that we, united, can address the issue. And fire up the grill, spring is here, it's barbecue season once again. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, April 12th, 2023. I don't know if you uh, happen to see this. Uh, it was on the uh, Sports Wire, kind of a uh, funny moment uh, the other day in the WNBA draft. Uh, Haley Jones, she's guard out of uh, Stanford University, was selected number six overall in the WNBA draft by the Atlanta Dream. When her name was called, this is what was was funny about this. When her name was called. She celebrated with her family before taking the stage to be formally introduced, as draft picks do. You've seen these things on TV before, right? So she wanted to, you know, experience, have the full experience and live in the moment. So she understandably and probably appropriately left her phone behind when she uh, came out from backstage to be introduced. She left her phone with her family. She wanted to live in the moment. Uh, As it turns out, because she left her phone behind, she missed a phone call from her new head coach. Tanisha Wright was trying to call her to say congratulations, looking forward to having you on the team, and so on and so forth. Um, When she couldn't reach her by phone, she tweeted, she posted a a, a tweet uh, about welcoming her to the team, but because uh, Haley Jones didn't have her phone. She didn't get the tweet either. <laughs> Only later was she informed that the coach was trying to reach her during the post-draft media interview. <laughs> and so this thing turned into a trending thing. Hashtag pick up your phone. <laughs> That's not a great way to make a, a good first impression, right? <laughs> I think everything is fine. I don't think she's in hot water with her uh, new coach, but... It was kind of a lighthearted moment from the WNBA draft. I mean, we like to live in the moment and not, you know, rely on tech and break free of our technology. But sometimes there's a downside to that, I suppose. By the way, uh, speaking of technology, this is kind of interesting. You know how um, the chat GPT thing has been all the rage, this artificial intelligence um, people have been using it to write term papers, <laughs> compose emails to colleagues and friends uh, using artificial intelligence. We even had the story last week about the Finley Brewing Company uh, doing a new AI beer. The recipe uh, was created by ChatGPT. Well, now a man from Thailand is claiming that the artificial intelligence bot helped him generate the numbers that won the lottery for him. Yeah. AI helped him win the lottery. And I have no idea how to pronounce this guy's name. He's from Thailand, so I won't even try to pronounce his name because it's kind of weird, at least weird by our standards. I guess in Thailand, they probably think Joe Jones would be a weird name. But anyway, 
so this guy went viral after sharing the details on TikTok of how he used the AI chatbot, ChatGPT, um, to generate the numbers that he in turn used to play the lottery, and he won. His strategy included inputting some hypothetical questions as well as some prior winning numbers as a query, and the computer spit back out uh, the numbers that he used to win 2,000 Thai bot. A bot? Is that the currency in Thailand? 2,000 of them. By the way, it's the equivalent of $59 US. So it's not like he won a million bucks here. He won $59. But still... He uh, told uh, local news reporters that he used this strategy to generate lottery numbers in the past, uh, and the chatbot told him not to get too obsessed with the method, noting that winning the lottery was a matter of luck and also suggested he should go out and get some exercise. So <laughs> the chatbot <laughs> told him, okay, well, here are your winning lottery numbers, but hey, don't rely on this to it. Just get up and do something, you know? Anyway. <laughs> But he won the lottery with the, uh, with the chatbot. And uh, it's just another indication that our lives are being taken over by technology. And like anything related to technology, young people apparently are much more comfortable with this than our older folks. A new study out of Duke University finds that kids who... You know, are growing up in this era where machines, intelligent machines and intelligent devices are so ubiquitous, uh, actually have a concern about people being kind to these machines. They believe people should not yell at or harm AI devices. <laughs> the study asked a group of 127 kids aged 4 to 11 and they asked them to rate how smart Alexa was compared to the floor-cleaning Roomba robot. You have a Roomba uh, robotic vacuum? So they asked, how intelligent are these things? Uh, kids tended to say Alexa and Roomba are probably not ticklish. <laughs> now, again, these were 4 to 11-year-olds. They said, no, they're probably not ticklish. But more children thought Alexa had mental and emotional capabilities. See, this is how lifelike these digital assistants have become, that kids actually believe that they have emotional capabilities. And the kids said that Alexa could become, uh, could even become upset if, some were, if someone were to be mean to it. So if you are mean to your digital assistant, expect your kids to get upset at that. Uh, children agreed it would be wrong to hit machines. <laughs> so don't hit. Um, one in uh, one ten-year-old said it was not okay to yell at the machines because the microphone might break, and another said the robot would actually feel sad. So I don't know. I kind of chuckled at that uh, survey at first when I saw it, and then I thought, you know. We may need to have a serious conversation with our kids about exactly what machines do and don't do and what they are and aren't capable of. You know what I mean? Because that, 
think about it. Is although uh, maybe sometime in the not too distant future, uh, these machines will have emotions. I don't know. <laughs> Couple of other items among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. This is big news. The city of Boston is considering banning, banning those tiny bottles of booze that you see near store registers. You know, the <laughs> used to be you went to the checkout line at the convenience store and you saw you know, gum and candy bars and all that. Now they have those uh, little mini bottles of fireball, right? Um, so, a city councilor in Boston has proposed the idea of banning those little bottles of booze, and they, he cites several reasons for this, including alcohol abuse, because the bottles are cheaper, drinking and driving, because they are easily concealed, uh, teenage drinking, and, uh, littering. Now, not surprisingly, the stores, uh, the, uh, the city's store owners oppose the idea because these mini bottles can account, they say, for up to 15% of total liquor sales. Counter proposals involve ideas like a buyback program to help reduce littering. So, it's, I don't know. We'll see where it goes. And uh, yesterday, we mentioned yesterday, I wish I'd have actually seen this yesterday because it would have been more timely, but yesterday we mentioned was National Pet day and a new uh, new numbers out from the American Pet Products Association uh, shows just how crazy we are about our pets in 2022 Americans shelled out 136.8 billion dollars for our lovable fuzzy freeloaders <laughs> and uh, there's good reason the CDC says there are many health benefits to owning a pet. Uh, regular walking or playing with pets can de decrease your blood pressure, lower your cholesterol levels, uh, can give you more exercise. Pets can help manage loneliness and depression by giving us companionship. They have even been found to alleviate symptoms of PTSD as well. The U.S. Census reports that 63.8 million Occupied housing units in this country have a pet. That's roughly 50% of all households have a pet. Of those, 49% have one or more dogs. 28% have a cat. 5% have a fish. Uh, just under 3% keep birds as pets. Uh, the same number keep small mammals like hamsters and gerbils. And 2.5% of households own reptiles snakes and bearded dragons and that kind of thing. Families with children are more likely to have pets. 57% of homes with kids under 18 are pet households compared to 46% of households with no children. And for the record, census data shows Phoenix, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and Riverside, California have the highest pet ownership among the top 15 largest metro areas at 55 and 54% respectively. So I thought that was uh, kind of interesting. And related to that, this is a, a separate survey of 2,000 dog and cat owners found that 60% of us would rather cuddle with our pet than with our significant other. <laughs> a majority of us would rather cuddle with our pet 
than our spouse. 70% believe that their pets live like kings and queens in their household. Well, yeah, we're shelling out almost $137 billion on our pets. Yeah, they're living like kings. Um, pets offer so much to their companions. Uh, 49% say buying a pet designer clothing or accessories is one way to show appreciation for their pets. Here's, I've got a, I've got a newsflash for you. The pets really don't care. They, you know, if, if they've got a, a bone and a comfy bed, that's all they need. Parents say that a pet door, a pet fountain, and an automatic feeder are must-haves. So some of the $137 billion that we're spending on our pets. But I thought that was you know, 60% of us would rather cuddle with our pet than our significant other. <laughs> Honestly, I think my wife falls into that category. There he goes. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your midweek Wednesday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Plenty of sunshine expected again today, a high of 78. Just a few clouds tonight, a low of 53. The Hancock County Sheriff's Office and other agencies across the area and country are saluting their dispatchers this week during National Public Safety Telecommunicators Week. Captain Mark Price says dispatchers play a crucial role by providing that first initial contact with people to get them the help they need. That's all done by those individuals sitting in the dispatch centers, working together to help us as first responders out in the field, gain the information needed in a timely fashion so we can do our jobs. The captain's asking people who know a dispatcher to reach out to them this week and thank them for what they do. The American Red Cross National Sound the Alarm event is coming to Findlay. On Saturday, April 29th, we will be hitting the streets in the area over by Maple Grove Cemetery, going door-to-door and offering installation of free smoke alarms. Red Cross's Todd James says in addition to installing smoke alarms in homes that need them, they'll teach people about what they can do now to be prepared should a fire break out in their home. The event is seeking volunteers. Get more information on our website. Cleveland Browns fans will have a chance to vacation with some legends. The team announcing the first ever Browns fan cruise will set sail next March. A dozen Browns legends and alumni already booked for the five-night voyage. Throughout the week, fans, alumni, and team staff will enjoy fun activities like beach parties, competitions, and dinners together. The cruise will leave the Port of Miami on March 11th. We'll visit Nassau, the Bahamas, and Jamaica before returning on March 16th. I'm Lena Lai. The Finley-Hancock County Public Library has announced the winners of its Tell-A-Tale Short Story and Illustration Contest. In the contest, kids in grades K-5 through in Hancock County submitted stories and drawings on any topic of their choosing. The library partnered with the University of Finley's Mazza Museum for the illustration portion of the contest. Among the winners, 5th grader Mary Hardy won first place at her grade level for her cover illustration art for Nova and Willow's Journey, which you can see with this story on our website. Matt Demchak for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Well, the National Federation of Independent Business, the NFIB, is speaking out against a particular provision in the newly released White House budget proposal, which they say would not only make it tougher for small businesses to operate, but would in fact crush the ability of these mom-and-pop operations to grow and create jobs. Josh McLeod is manager of federal government relations for the NFIB, and Josh, this is a reintroduction of a provision that you 
fought to have removed from the so-called Inflation Reduction Act last year, right? That is true. And, you know, all these these bad ideas just seem to keep percolating year after year. So um, we are we're back to uh, back to the same fight, um, trying to give some breathing room to all our member businesses. We've got about 300,000 across the country. Um, Ohio is one of our, our larger states. We've got almost 20,000 in the state. So um, big shout out to to all the NFIB members that are that are in the listening audience, and we appreciate you uh, being on the team. And and uh, you know, to the other small independent businesses out there, please reach out. We'd love to have you join the team and and fight against these trillions of of proposed tax hikes that would crush crush the private sector, crush small businesses. Now, you refer to this as the small business surtax. I- explain, in your view the ramifications here? Well, it's, it's businesses are, are facing a lot of economic headwinds right now. You have uh, labor shortages that are persistent. You've got supply chain issues that continue. Um, you've got businesses still emerging from the COVID pandemic. And uh, on top of that, you've got uh, unprecedented regulations coming out of the administration um, President Biden's first year, $200 billion in additional costs, the largest first year total on record. And so when you take that, all these factors, and then you add this um, additional tax, trillions of tax uh, increases, it, it's just, it, it doesn't make sense. And, and businesses need relief. They need breathing room. Uh, this is not the time to add all these additional taxes on on the private sector now the white house uh, obviously does not call it a small business surtax uh the president insists that it, it applies only to the portion of income over four hundred thousand dollars and for a lot of people that stretches the definition of small business pretty far sure absolutely no and and you know it's it's the usual this is a loophole um, you know, we, we can quibble on their use of that term, but these are, these are not loopholes. These are, these are an additional, uh, 5% tax on small business income above $400,000. Um, it, it would well, be devastating. To, I, I, I guess, small business. I guess my, uh, my question in relation to that, help us out for those who, uh, maybe, uh, don't understand or not small business owners, uh, why, uh, $400,000 threshold is, uh, is not unreasonable. You, you know what I mean? I mean, again, for a lot of average folks, they look inside and say $400,000, you know, that's not my idea of small business. So why is that so problematic for small businesses? Sure. Well, well, so I think, I think you have to take into account a couple factors. So, uh, the tax cuts and jobs act of 2017, the S corp, so the the small business deduction um, that expires at the end of 2025, and so you've got this looming large tax increase that will hit the pass pass through businesses, which is the majority of of small businesses and businesses in the economy. So mm-hmm. you've got that looming over uh, small businesses, and then you add an additional tax onto a five percent tax um, through the the president's budget. And it's, it's just never ending, right? Like the, the tax increases uh, that are facing small, small businesses, they just keep coming. Um, and so 
that's why we initiated this campaign. Um, that's why we are, we're fighting back to, um, make sure that we provide certainty to, to small businesses out there and, uh, provide a pass through, uh, extension and, and make sure that we have some certainty in the tax code. Um, you mentioned those uh, buzzwords of closing the loopholes in a guest essay for the New York Times recently. The president uh, also touted the, that the proposal would, quote unquote, close loopholes that allow individuals at or over that $400,000 threshold to shield that income from being taxed. Let me ask this. Absent the tax increase, would it not be unreasonable to eliminate those loopholes and eliminate those tax shelters? Well, I guess, I guess it's an eye of the beholder, right? And, and how you define a loophole or, um, you know, the, and, and it kind of, again, it, it, uh, one, one person's loophole is another person's, <laughs> uh, investment into their business. And Fair so enough. I guess, uh, I guess it, it all depends on what side of the political spectrum you come down on. But I think as a more practical matter, um, we need to be, thinking about ways to reduce the tax burden on and the paperwork burden on small businesses, reduce the regulatory burden on small businesses to make sure that they can grow. Cause look, it is, it is a tough time. Uh, there, as I mentioned earlier, there's so many factors that are uh, facing business, the business world right now. So um, how do we, how do we lessen the load? How do we allow them to grow? How do we promote economic growth? Um, that's the conversation we should be having instead of just never-ending uh, proposals to increase the tax it burden. Is, it is certainly a, a valid point, uh, well taken, that small businesses, businesses of all sizes, but particularly small businesses, uh, face some pretty serious headwinds for all the reasons that you outlined earlier. But at the same time, uh, again, the president has said the revenue from these measures would be aimed at shoring up Medicare and the trust fund for another 25 years. And the financial uh, struggles of, of Medicare are also well documented. So, uh, again, you have uh, competitive repeating truths here. Yeah. And that's, those are the tough conversations that need yeah. to happen in Congress. Um, well, I, I, I recall years ago reading a stat and I, I don't mean to shift the conversation in healthcare, but for every $1 that is paid into uh, Medicare, $3 is pulled out. I think that was an urban Institute study. So mm-hmm. there are, there are serious um, issues facing the federal programs like Medicare. Um, and, and, you know, those are, those are tough conversations for, for, uh, folks in Congress to have, but, um, it's going to have to happen at some point. Yeah. Speaking of uh, Congress, at the end of the day, the White House can push for this and, and the rest of the bu- uh, budget proposal by the president, they can push for it all they want, but it's not getting past the House of Representatives controlled as it is by Republicans. So this proposal, the small business surtax uh, that we're talking about is DOA in Congress. So why does this raise such a level of concern when it's obviously not going anywhere? Well, um, I, I think, you know, these ideas don't go away, right? And so your uh, uh, president's budget is often um, the priorities for the administration. And mm-hmm. so the fact that you've got um, just tax after tax after tax that is being proposed, and actually this, this rate, this 5% tax is an increase uh, rate to my understanding. So the numbers are just 
getting bigger and, and the tax rates are only increasing. Uh, so we're, we're fearful that, um, you know, there could be some type of, uh, negotiation on the debt ceiling where there could be an increased tax rate, uh, that is agreed to in some sort of compromise. And like I said earlier, this is just not the time to be increasing taxes, uh, with, with all the, the headwinds and uncertainty facing the business community. So, um, you know, we want to have a, an economic growth conversation. How do we, how do we grow the economy? Um, and, and I hope we can get to that point and, and we can have that conversation in the debt ceiling discussions as well. We will leave it there, but obviously will be an issue we continue to follow. Josh McLeod is manager of federal government relations for the National Federation of Independent Business, the NFIB. Josh, thanks very much for taking the time and uh, sharing the NFIB's uh, perspective on this. We appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you. So once again, if you have been uh, following the news... Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas once again finds himself at the center of a controversy, this time over questions about uh, some uh, travel and other uh, perks that he has accepted over the years from a Republican billionaire donor by the name of uh, Harlan Crow. Uh, Scott Gerber is with us once again, uh, professor of law at Ohio Northern University's Pettit School of Law, uh, who's been with us many times on the program. Among his uh, published works are uh, biography of, uh, of Clarence Thomas. And I know, Scott, you have uh, long admired uh, Justice uh, Thomas. What is your take? You wrote an op-ed for The Hill uh, just a few days ago in which you basically say you don't think anything is going to come out of this uh, substantially, right? Right. I don't think anything will come out of it because Justice Thomas didn't vi- violate any ethics rules or any laws. Well, that actually uh, gets to the heart of what a lot of people have been talking about. It's been pointed out that there really aren't uh, any ethics rules, uh, hard and fast rules for Supreme Court justices. Unlike uh, other uh, judges and other courts, all the way up the line until you get to the Supreme Court, there's really uh, no rules that they are required to follow, are there? Correct. And I've written an op-ed recently in in response to the Dobbs abortion draft leak that the Supreme Court needs to be bound by ethics rules. So I'm all in favor of that. Um, But at the moment, they're not bound by them. And even if they were bound by them, uh, this would be an exception to it because it was just a personal friend uh, uh, on personal holiday with the man. That's it. It, it was have to report that. Yeah, it was uh, pointed out that uh, that Harlan Crow, uh, any of his interests, there was no there was no business before the court. Uh, so you know there uh, didn't appear to be any conflict of interest. But again, and we've talked about this before. It does bring up that question of why are there no ethics rules for Supreme Court justices and. How do you implement those? Because, again, Congress has talked about uh, imposing some of those rules, but it's not really Congress's purview to do that. That would uh, violate the separation of uh, powers, would it not? Uh, That would be the argument, of course, if Congress passed a law that said that 
the uh, Supreme Court justices have to comply with the following list of rules. Ideally, the justices themselves uh, would adopt them. And of course, the lower federal courts have specific ethics codes and uh, they should just follow those. And I think uh, at some point they're going to do that because there is a lot of public um, uh, pressure and desire for that. Well, again, and that and that's been another part of the conversation is been pointed out that the Supreme Court uh, public trust in the in the court is at an all time low. If you look at the uh, surveys, the polls, um, they're seeing a decline now. To be fair, all branches of government uh, are not very well thought of by the general public. But in the past, the Supreme Court has been somewhat immune from those waves of uh, of public uh, support or trust. And that doesn't seem to be the case with this court. Uh, There is a a lack of trust. And again, it boils down to that principle of avoiding the appearance of impropriety. Yeah, right. And I had mentioned that in a prior op-ed about the need for an ethics code that, the, as you pointed out, the uh, the public confidence in the court is at an all-time low and it keeps falling after the Dobbs leak in particular. Yeah. And, you know, that's a product. It's a very politicized environment now uh, with the court. I mean, look at the, the example that we're talking about with Justice Thomas. I mean, it's just so hyper-politicized. The left just is... Um, uh, just being really nasty about it mm-hmm. and they just keep beating the drum. And anytime justice Thomas does something that they can make a mountain out of a molehill about, they do. And it's because uh, he's conservative and he's a, a black conservative and that particularly offends them. Um, but he's allowed to be that. Um, and so I think it's just how hyper-partisan America is now. And it's this, the, the, the commentary about the Supreme court is not, immunized from that and it's 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 had its effect if you keep punching someone 40 times in the face at some point you're gonna you're gonna uh, score some marks on them. yeah um you know talk about the uh partisanship uh that we see in our politics and how it is uh, drawing in the supreme court to all of those battles i mean you look at the most recent example there the indictment of uh, of donald trump and uh what the uh New York uh, state attorney's uh, indictment of Jim Jordan uh, ju- just yesterday. I- I'm curious. Uh, I know this is on a-, a bit of a different subject, but since we've broached this, um, what are your thoughts as an attorney as to what you have seen uh, play itself out to this point in that case? And with regard to the, um, the 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 Trump and the hush money payments to the, yeah, the, the porn in- actress? Yeah, that- the indictment. Yeah. Yeah, um, a campaign finance law is very, very technical, and I'm not an expert on that. But what I've read about it is uh, that it's problematic for the DA to try to use federal law mm-hmm. to um, to upgrade a state misdemeanor into a state felony. Hmm. So that's problematic. And so my reaction to that was there's a lot of investigating of President Trump going on, and they could have probably found one that um, – uh, wouldn't raise that kind of problem, especially when the DA ran 
for office claiming he was going to get Trump, that yeah. doesn't look too good either. Right. Again, uh, talk about avoiding the appearance of impropriety. There's certainly a lot of appearance there. And and uh, the other case that uh, reeks of, of politics uh, in our culture today uh, was the uh, ruling just a few days ago uh, from the uh, uh, from the district court uh, overturning the FDA's approval of that uh, abortion drug. And I, I wonder if that also sets kind of a dangerous precedent uh, beyond just the abortion question. How concerning is that? And do you see that one getting fast-tracked to the Supreme Court, given that there was a, another court ruling, which basically was the exact opposite? Yeah, um, th- th- there's long been a, um, a desire by uh, conservative judges to abolish deference to uh, administrative agencies. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, in particular, had spoken out about that for a good long while. And so that case that you're describing seems like it's part of that kind of trend. Um, and so maybe the Supreme Court will take it to to say something more about we need to get rid of this what's called Chevron, Chevron deference um, and just go down that path that they've wanted to go down as a conservative legal movement for a good while. I wonder whether it's a, a good thing to have the uh, courts uh, weighing in on decisions uh, of whether or not a, a medical uh, a medication is safe uh, for uh, to to be sold on the market. Again, setting aside the abortion question, um, I, I just wonder where that goes if we open that box. No, that's a very good point, and that's an argument for deference to administrative agencies. And yeah. one reason we have administrative agencies, in mm. theory at least, is they're staffed by experts in their particular jurisdictional area, like food and drug uh, uh, things, like yeah. the FDA would be. And judges aren't experts in that. So that's an argument uh, against the conservative desire to rid the deference to agencies. Yeah, all all kinds of uh, things that are going on uh, involving the Supreme Court and, and uh, legal cases that'll be worth watching. It's never a dull moment uh, with respect to that. Getting back to the uh, question of the uh, ethics rules for Supreme Court justices, uh, you said before you think eventually that will come to pass, that there will be some sort of ethics rules adopted. Uh, what what do you anticipate that form would that take? I mean, is that something that uh, that Chief Justice Roberts would have to initiate, or you know, what what is the mechanism by which that you can see that imp- being implemented? Um, well, I think the court would have to vote on it. Although I'm not positive exactly how they would implement it, that would be my guess. I'm very doubtful that the Chief Justice could just impose it on the other nine. Yeah members of the court, I think they'd probably all eventually reach consensus on it because it does look bad that they're the only judges uh, in the federal system that aren't constrained by ethics codes. Yeah. Uh, be really interesting to follow where uh, that goes. Again, uh, Scott Gerber is with us, uh, Ohio Northern University's Pettit School of Law. Uh, we've got a link up on our webpage uh, to his piece on the uh, controversy regarding Justice uh, Thomas and the uh, gifts that he accepted and the uh, propriety of those. And 
So go to goodmornings.net to read more on that. Scott, thanks very much, as always, for uh, lending your voice. We appreciate it. You're welcome, Chris. Have a good day. Now, the Good Mornings Community and Business Spotlight. Once again, Angela Dabosky of the United Way of Hancock County is with us in the studio this morning. And we were talking actually a little bit earlier this week about Child Abuse Prevention Month. And you've got stories. I know you always like to share stories of mm-hmm. uh, how people are impacted by the work that you do in the United Way. Literally, in this case, it's hundreds of stories. It is hundreds of stories. So, Each week, there's a child in our community that witnesses a a parent overdosing on drugs. Mm. That creates an effect in that child's life. um, Last week, there was an article by the Director of Child Protective Services that we have over 100 kids in foster care in our community. So there are a lot of kids out there needing all kinds of levels of us to get involved. So what if, as a community, we say we're not going to lose one of those at-risk kids. What does that take? And so I have a few ideas that I thought I'd share with you this morning. Very good. It's as easy as doing a packaging event for Feed a Child. Two in five kids in our community are food insecure. Mm -hmm. That means during the summer, during the weekends, they have a hard time getting to those food resources. So be part of a packaging event. It's a one-time thing. You can go and feel good about it and know you made a difference. Be a reader at the local schools. Those are easy entry points. Mm -hmm. But then there are ones that take a little bit more commitment, like a become a mentor at Children's Mentoring Connection. Get involved and build a relationship with an at-risk youth. Or become a CASA volunteer and give a child a voice within the court system. Or even jump into foster care. Go explore it. See, could I be a quality foster care home or an adoptive family for one of these children? There's always a tremendous need for uh, these safe spaces. And there's a lot of ways to be involved at different entry points across our community. So if you reach out to United Way, we can help you connect to something that fits your time needs as well as your heart's passion for taking care. What if we don't lose one of these kids? Yeah, that's the the real, the, the great part about this is that, as you said, there are a lot of different levels. Some people may not necessarily be comfortable with uh, being a foster family, but you can do something. What is that old saying? I can't do everything, but that won't stop me from doing something. And it collectively, if we add all those somethings together, exactly. that's a dynamic community that I want to be a part of. So how does one get started? Well, you can uh, connect with United Way and we'll have some time to, to help you find exactly that right spot. But there's a way to dip your toe in in May that's pretty easy. We are sponsoring a chocolate walk in downtown Finley. So if you like chocolate, it's the Saturday before Mother's and Day. who doesn't like chocolate? Right. You come visit downtown vendors, downtown restaurants. Be a vendor as a part of it and participate. There you go. It will all be in support of United Way's Vulnerable Children Initiative. And we will put the money raised from that directly back into our community, into programs like I've mentioned. Um, You could also buy a ticket. You can go online. That opens up today, as a matter of fact. You can go and buy a $25 ticket and get samples from lots of restaurants. Um, Lots of retailers also are getting involved in offering chocolate that day in support of kids. So what is the date on that again? It's May 13th. Okay, so circle that on the calendar, and you've got more information, including ticket availability on the website? Yes, just go to uwhancock.org to learn more. You can purchase your tickets right there. 
Again, Angela Dabosky is with us from the United Way of Hancock County talking Child Abuse Prevention Month and the things that we can all do to make a difference united in the community. Angela, thanks very much. Thank you. The Community and Business Spotlight is a promotional advertisement paid for by the featured sponsor. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Okay, this is weird, and sometimes you don't have to go very far to find the uh, broken news. A Detroit man is accused of assaulting victims at a Michigan Welcome Center. (laughs) The Michigan Welcome Center uh, on I-75. He is now actually in custody in the Lucas County Jail uh, in Ohio. This uh, uh, story uh, continues right here into the Toledo area. So reports say, you might have heard about this, reports say the 32-year-old suspect was grabbing at men's private parts in the restroom of the Monroe Township rest stop, (laughs) 75, uh, Monday morning um, before attacking another person in the lobby of the Welcome Center. That's really not the way you want to welcome people to your state. You know what I mean? That's (laughs) grabbing other men's private parts. When officers responded to the scene, the suspect reportedly sped off, uh, somehow got turned around. Uh, This is at the Welcome Center. So what? That's 75 northbound, right? Monroe Township. Um, (laughs) Somehow got turned around and uh, headed south uh, into Ohio and was arrested when he ran out of gas and then was caught after a brief foot chase. (laughs) Welcome to Michigan. That's... Not the normal way you want to welcome people in the state of Michigan. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Elsewhere in the uh, broken news, you know, uh, people often have run-ins with their HOA. If you live in a neighborhood with a homeowners association, uh, it's usually good for a story or two over the the course of time because, you know, HOAs can be kind of uh, finicky sometimes. Well, one woman, and I'm not sure exactly where... Uh, this is uh, this is actually an online story. She posted about it on the Reddit bulletin board. Uh, woman decided to, she was having a, a disagreement with her HOA. She decided to spitefully decorate her lawn with toilets after neighbors complained about her garden. <laughs> the anonymous poster shared her tale of revenge. She was doing some construction on her property when a neighbor group sent a letter complaining about the mess. The scathing letter reads, When you first moved in, I wasn't sure if you had the class, the finances, or the breeding to be in our illustrious neighborhood. And I see that you finally built a place to hide all the junk you insist on keeping in your yard. What nice neighbors. A very pleasant neighborhood. This is like a wonderful place to live. So to get even, the uh, poster put uh, two old toilets on either side of her driveway. <laughs> And then she stuck flowers in the bowls. She also made a large sign that thanked her neighbors for their suggestions. <laughs> I love it. Uh, let's see. Get even with the neighbors. A man is accused of shooting into a Florida restaurant, opening fire in a Florida restaurant after he was asked to leave. Christopher Nordic arrested over the weekend. Uh, Witnesses told police that Mr. Nordic was bothering customers inside the Back Porch restaurant in Longwood, Florida, 
when he was asked to get out. This happened Sunday night. Officials say he left, but came back and began shooting to the restaurant's front door. Fortunately, no injuries were reported in the incident. I can't imagine why in the world he would have been asked to leave. Seems like such a pleasant gentleman. Somebody that you would you would certainly want is patronizing your establishment, right? Uh, not to be outdone, a father facing charges after Nashville police say <laughs> he picked his five-year-old up from school while he was drunk. Father of the year. <laughs> father of the year candidate. Mitchell Washington was picking up his five-year-old from school when a security officer noted Mr. Mitchell had possibly been drinking and called police. Officers caught up with him at an apartment complex, and he admitted that he had had one too many. He was arrested for DUI, also faces charges of child endangerment, and just to just for fun, they added a charge of driving on a suspended license. So, there's that, too. You try to do a nice thing, pick your kid up from school, and... It all goes sideways. Uh, <laughs> from the international file, the broken news, this is weird. A friendly game of Monopoly almost took a deadly turn when two players ended up in the hospital after a disagreement turned into a sword fight. This was in Belgium. Uh, friendly game of Monopoly when one player accused the other of che- cheating and attacked him with a samurai sword. That is not part of the game. I know uh, a lot of games have different rules in this country than they do, (laughs) you know, in other countries, you know, culture differences and so on. But I don't think that's in the rules anywhere. I don't think attacking someone with a samurai sword is part of the game. Uh, Both players were injured. According to local news reports, both men taken to the hospital uh, to be treated for their injuries. I think they're going to be okay. I hope they're going to be okay, but... uh, no more Monopoly for you. Um, and finally, in the broken news, back to the Sunshine State, a Florida middle school teacher is facing charges after allegedly organizing student fights in her own classroom. Video footage appears to show Angel Footman watching the fights from her desk, according to court documents. Students reportedly say, Ms. Footman laid down ground rules, no hair pulling, no screaming, and fights would only last for 30 seconds. Uh, She has admitted, for her part, she has admitted that the fights did happen in her classroom, but she claims that they all happened too fast for her to do anything. So, she shouldn't be held responsible, but the kids say she's the one that organized them in the first place. What lesson would that be? There is issues in Florida schools. There you go. Uh, That is today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Ever wonder what being a Findlay Rotarian is all about? I'm Alyssa Preston, director of the Hancock County Convention and Visitors Bureau. I am proud to be a Findlay Rotarian because locally we make an impact by recognizing amazing educators in the Findlay and Hancock County area through the Golden Apple. Award. To become part of an organization that brings together business, professional leaders to provide community service and advance goodwill, contact Findlay Rotary at FindlayRotary.org and click on join. This message provided by WFIN. 
And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Almost four in ten Americans say that they feel financially unhealthy uh, with record-breaking inflation and uh, all of that. Four in ten, 40 percent of Americans say they feel financially unhealthy. We referenced uh, a while back this survey of 8,500 people in 10 countries, not just this country. Um, internationally, 8,500 people responded to this survey, including 2,000 Americans. 43% say that they have asked for financial help in the past 12 months. Uh, again, about the same number that say they feel financially unhealthy. Uh, results show that respondents are relying on others for help with the essentials. Um, rent or mortgage, 29% say they've asked for, for help. 40% have asked for help in paying for groceries. And who are they asking? Well, most often their parents. 57% say they've asked their parents for some financial assistance. 42% have turned to friends. And 15% have asked their child for money uh, in, the, in the past year. Um, 25% have turned to a co-worker. So it's not always... A family member, but I thought that was kind of interesting. And with respect to how much money you would need to be making, what kind of salary you would need to be making in order to feel more financially stable, uh, they break this down by age group. Gen Z said that they would require an average salary of $171,000 to feel financially healthy. That's the highest income. Uh, as compared to other generations. Uh, This was a a survey from personal finance company, Personal Capital, and retirement plan provider, Empower. It was conducted by the Harris Poll. Millennials say that they would need nearly $134,000 a year. That's how much they would have to be making in order to feel financially healthy. Gen Xers would be comfortable with $112,000 a year. And baby boomers say they could get by on a frugal $78,000. But all those uh, numbers are uh, well above what a lot of people make. I mean, that is uh, kind of interesting. But even while Americans remain concerned about the state of their finances, experts say don't lose hope. In a choppy market, there are plenty of opportunities to take control of your money, according to the chief investment officer at Personal Capital. Knowing your net worth puts you in the driver's seat because you need a real-time measure of your financial health in order to make smart moves. And it's kind of interesting uh, talking about the salary that these uh, groups feel that they would have to make to feel financially healthy when they turn the question around and ask, how much money would you have to have in savings in order to feel financially healthy, financially stable? The numbers are almost the exact opposite. Uh, Baby boomers say that they would need the most and um, Gen Zers and millennials say that they would need the least. So uh, it's kind of interesting the differences between what people make and what people have saved. And of course, it makes sense that older folks are more concerned with their long-term savings as they get older. But interesting numbers all the way around about Americans and their financial health. (music) 
Well, fire up the grill. Spring is here in its barbecue season once again. Of course, hardcore grill masters will tell you there is no off-season for great barbecue. And Barbecue Hall of Famer Stephen Reichlin is with us this morning. Once again, his renowned Barbecue Bible is celebrating 25 years in print, more than a million copies in circulation, the book that started the barbecue revolution. And Stephen, what initially kind of fueled your love of this particular form of culinary art uh, to, uh, you know, drove you to become such a, a legendary pit master? I'm curious. Well, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, I do not come from a line of pit masters, uh, but uh, I do remember what happened, where I was sitting, what I was wearing, what the weather was like, <laughs> and it was like time slowed down. And I heard this voice from heaven. And it said, follow the fire. <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, it really, uh, this idea popped into my head one day. And the idea was that grilling is the world's most universal cooking method, but everywhere it's done differently. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool to write a book, you know, travel around the world and document how people grill in different countries and cultures? Yeah. And that book became the Barbecue Bible, and with it, I became, you know, yeah. that became my life's work. Yeah. So what has it been like seeing this become such an obsession, knowing that you had a pretty significant hand in making it happen? Uh, it is immensely gratifying. You know, I guess, so, sort of, I believe that we're put on this earth to try and make the world a better place, and, you know, if I have helped uh, people... <laughs> Uh, have more pleasure and serve better food by uh, my work in barbecue, well, then I feel like mission accomplished. So uh, after all these years then, what drives that passion today that you still have for live fire cooking? Well, it is such a broad field. And, you know, I, I remember talking to Julia Child when I was first starting out my writing career. And she said, you know, Stephen, Pick a subject of broad interest where you don't, you know, you don't get broader than barbecue. Everybody around the world loves barbecue. Yeah. But then take an approach that you and only you could do. And for me, that was this traveling, you know, this traveling the world's barbecue trail. Um, what fires me up still today is that there's still new things to be discovered. I mean, you know, uh, thinking about my recent book, my last book was a book on grilling vegetables. So that enabled me to do a deep dive into that particular style of cooking. Mm -hmm. Before that, I wrote the brisket chronicles that enabled me to focus on a single piece of meat, you know, that is so iconic and beloved around the world. Uh, Project smoke enabled me to focus. So there's always something new to write about. And you were kind of alluding to this and thrumming, thumbing through the book. Uh, we've, we've said this before. It, it seems that there really is nothing that you can't do on the grill. But if you had a favorite, what would it be? Oh, boy. Uh, favorite thing to grill. I, I mean, mean that, may be asking, you know, that may be like asking a parent to name their favorite child, but still. I was going to say that. That's a favorite child question. I'm going to give you three. How's that? Okay. Okay. So. Number one, it's called Catalan Grilled Tomato Bread. It's an appetizer from Spain, super simple to make. You grill slices of French bread, give every guest a clove of garlic and a cut tomato. They rub the garlic into the hot grilled bread, then the tomatoes squeezing the juices into the bread, Mm. little olive oil, salt, and pepper, pop it into your mouth. Fantastic. Not only tastes great, but it's interactive. You know, it gets everybody involved. For main course, I'm going to say the steak from hell. This is a Mexican recipe. Uh, I was uh, touring <laughs> restaurants in Oaxaca, and my guide sort of took me all to all the tourist places, which were awful. And then I asked my cab driver coming home, you know, where do you, you eat barbecue? 
And he took me to this shack that had a big pile of mesquite logs outside. Meat wasn't even refrigerated. Uh, they grilled the steak and served it with this fiery chile de arbol sauce. And that became my favorite steak recipe. Wow. Dessert. Uh, it's a fast one. It's uh, my barbecue version of a baked apple, uh, stuffed with cinnamon, sugar, uh, and cinnamon brown sugar. But instead of cooking it in the oven, you do it on a grill with wood cho- with apple wood cho- uh, chunks uh, added to the fire to generate mm, wood smoke. Man, well, let me ask you this, and I'm, I'm wondering if maybe the apple is is one of those that uh, that falls into this category. What's the most difficult thing to barbecue? Well, I guess for many people, it would say, you know, I would say fish because there's a, you know, fish does have a tendency to stick to the grill grate. Uh, Sometimes you go to turn it, it falls apart. You know, you never know, like the timing is a little bit more sensitive than let's say if you're cooking a pork chop, you Mm -hmm. know, if you overcook fish, it's definitely know it. Um, And I have a large chapter in Barbecue Bible about fish, uh, but there are several, you know, techniques you can use. Oiling the grate well is uh, one uh, grilling a fish on a cedar plank is another technique. Using a grill basket is another oh. one. And this is something you don't usually think of, but uh, I've learned it through years of experience. You put a salmon steak on the grill, and then your immediate impulse is to try to move it because you think, oh, my God, I don't want it to stick. Right. Well, if you try and move it after 10 seconds, it is going to stick. But if you wait two minutes, it will come back off of the uh, bars the grate itself. It'll unstick itself. Then it becomes much easier to turn. Mm. There you go. An insider expert tip there. What are the the keys to great barbecue? What are the must-haves? Well, the must-haves are, you know, you need a grill. uh, You need uh, long-handled spring-loaded tongs. uh, A a suede grill glove helps. Uh, You need uh, an instant read meat thermometer. That's real important. Either a grill brush or a wooden scraper for cleaning your grill. And, you know, I think with those, you know, if you have a charcoal griller, you want to have a chimney starter to light the charcoal, but that's about it. You know, I know there are a zillion accessories. Hell, I manufacture a lot of accessories (laughs) under the uh, brand of uh, Stephen Reichland's Signature Series, but those... Four items are really the essentials. That's really what you need. And I, I love the one tip from the book. We're talking about tips and uh, you know getting started on the right way. The one tip from the book about when to apply the barbecue sauce when you're doing like ribs, or, when you're doing like ribs or something, in order to keep them from burning. Which I have learned again through experience is a common issue that is worth the price of the book right there. Absolutely. And it goes on at the end because remember, barbecue sauce has a lot of sugar in it. You put it on the beginning, the sugar will burn way before the chicken is done. In fact, when I was growing up, barbecued chicken was this. It was uh, chicken charred black as coal on the outside with burnt barbecue sauce. Uh, still raw in the center, tasting of the lighter fluid that was used to imperfectly light the coals, and then we ordered out for Chinese food. So I I did not come from a barbecue background. I was going to say, I've had a few of those meals myself. Again, uh, Stephen Reichlin is uh, author of The Barbecue Bible, celebrating 25 years in print. If you are ready to dive in uh, this spring and summer, it is the one book you absolutely have to have, and it's just one of your many books. You've got uh, more information about all of them on your website, right? I do, barbecuebible.com. And by the way, I have a new TV series uh, launching over Memorial Day weekend. It's called Planet Barbecue. It will be on your local public television show. And, uh, you know, instead of just hearing me talk about this stuff, you can actually see me do it. We'll link it up on our webpage. Stephen, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. 
I love speaking with you. Thank you. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks again to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage. And that, of course, is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program after two shootings in the past week, Findlay Police are spotlighting the Citizen Connect program to keep the community safe and secure. We'll learn more. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.